It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians And we just made it through one verse last week. That's right. We were talking about the calling of the Apostle Paul being called not only to his ministry, but even to writing the text that we are going to be going through here over probably these next 40 weeks. That's right. To get through 1 Corinthians, it's going to take a bit of a journey as we even go all the way through the rest of 2019 into 2020 to cover this text. But it is a letter that is still needed for us to read today. It is amazing how relevant Scripture is throughout all of time. Uh, Though this was written most likely around 57 AD, here we are in 2019, and it is just as relevant today as it was then, as Paul is instructing a church that is saturated in a culture of polytheism and pagan worship of all sorts, even sexual immorality, and this was infiltrating into the church. This is a church that Paul founded, and he's writing to them from Ephesus, writing this letter to hopefully get them back on track. And he doesn't start off with discouragement. Rather, he he gives thanks for them because he's already seeing the good work that God is going to do. He knows that God is at work in their midst despite the discouragement that he may feel in the flesh of looking at their failures. He's seeing their potential that I know what you can become in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, if although we're not going to cover verse 1 here again, I encourage you to go back and listen to that when you get a chance at calvaryfountain.com. Again, this is a broadcast ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, and, and we're so blessed to be able to come on the radio and, and share the teachings, even though they're summaries of what we're able to do on Sunday. We love going through the Bible verse by verse, and, and often I have about 45 minutes on a Sunday, only about 25 minutes with you here on this program. So I'm going to summarize the best I can. If any of this intrigues you to want to go deeper, of course, you can go to calvaryfountain.com, and there you'll find videos and sermon notes on our study here of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and all the way through 1 Corinthians. So let's pick up in verse 2 where we read, "...to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours." Now, if you pick up something about Paul's use of the title of the name Jesus Christ between 1-1 and 1-2, you'll notice that many Greek manuscripts have reversed the order of these words and read Jesus Christ rather than Christ Jesus. Now, the Aramaic dialect, as Jesus was called, was they named him Yeshua HaMashiach. And Paul is fond of the order Christ Jesus. Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. We go to Matthew 16, 16, where we read, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. So Paul wants us to understand several important truths about this church. Number one, that God is the leader of the church. He says, to the church of God. Now, how, how often we hear churches identified in terms of who the pastor is, that's so-and-so's church, and we fill in the blank with the pastor's name. But Paul, who believed that the church belongs to God, wants to make that clear right here. It's God's church. And in fact, he'll tell us in Ephesians that this is the body of Christ. We are a family 
He says, all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. He, he thinks of the city church. It's every local church, regardless of size, is like a, a pebble on a beach. And it's easy to think that we're only a pebble on a beach, but he wants us to know that we're all part of something much bigger than ourselves. See, the church is global. At the start of the 20th century, only 10% of the world's Christians lived in the continents of South and East. 90% of Christians lived in North America and Europe, along with Australia and New Zealand. 90%. But at the start of the 21st century, at least 70% of the world's Christians live in a non-Western world. More Christians worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than all the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Britain, Europe, and North America combined. So there are more Baptists in Congo than in Britain, and there are more people in church every Sunday in communist China than all of Western Europe. There are 10 times more Assemblies of God members in Latin America than in the United States. So we're all little pebbles of God's endless kingdom beach. And I'm not talking about false teachers and pagan groups that call themselves Christian. Rather, I'm talking about Bible-believing, Jesus-serving, God-honoring churches. Our theology must be one church, many congregations. And God gives us a new identity. The word sanctified can often be used as a metaphor for conversion, but it always paints this picture of transformation and maturation, this process in the life of a believer. And we're going to cover that here in in verse 30 and in chapter 6, verse 11. So to be sanctified means to be set apart, holy, consecrated, hallowed. So the Bible speaks of things being sanctified, such as Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, verse 23, even the gifts to the temple in Matthew 23, 17. Days such as the Sabbath, Exodus 20, verse 8. Even God's name, Matthew 6, 9. And people like the Israelites of Leviticus 27, 8 and Christians of Ephesians 5.26. So just as the temple of old was sanctified for God's use, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit that are set apart for God's holy purposes, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19 that we'll get to in this study of 1 Corinthians. So to be sanctified means that God's word has had an effect on us and has been at work in our lives. It's through the word that God cleanses us and makes us holy according to Ephesians 5.26 and John 17.17. So God invites us sinners to come to him just as we are and to receive his mercy and forgiveness. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit begins his amazing work of transforming us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 12. So to be sanctified means that God loves us too much to let us stay the same. The Corinthians were saints by divine calling, but not by their conduct. A saint is not a dead person who's been honored by men because of of their holy life. Rather, Paul wrote to living saints, individuals set apart for God's special enjoyment and use. So what an encouragement that is. So regardless of our behavior, in the midst of some of our most difficult times, God continues to see us as his people, a work in progress. But when we blow it, 
we are still his children. But this awareness that gives us the confidence to return to God in repentance gives us the ability to know that we will still be heard despite our failures. You're still his child. Now, after David, let me just use this illustration here, after King David had fallen into temptation with Bathsheba, when Bathsheba and her husband, he has him killed, her husband, Uriah, and Bathsheba then becomes pregnant, and their first child dies after birth in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. But the story didn't end there. After David repented, God in his mercy gave David another son with Bathsheba, whom they would name Solomon. So the future king of Israel would be known as the wisest man on earth at that time, according to 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34, second only to Jesus Christ. And this was all in spite of the fact that David had 19 other children, according to 1 Chronicles 3, 1 to 9. So any of the other children could have been chosen, but God chose the son of the adulterous wife. So how many of you have ever committed adultery and then killed the husband of the woman you committed adultery with? No? Nobody? Well, that's good. Because God, if God can forgive David and Bathsheba, God can forgive and restore you too. You're still a child. Can I get an amen from that? Okay. Here we are, verse 3. We read, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting sums up Paul's whole theological outlook. Grace, charis, it speaks of God's free gift to us in Christ. So grace not only forgives us when we sin, it empowers us so that we will embrace the sanctification process. And grace helps us to say no to sin and yes to Christ Jesus. And then he says peace, which is shalom, and it means more than peace does in the English language, it means not the absence of strife, but the presence of positive blessing. And God gives us every gracious gift. So, so like in, in the other epistles that Paul re- writes to us, Paul follows his greeting with an expression of thanksgiving, as specifically thanksgiving for this church at Corinth. Why does he give thanks? Well, Paul does not give thanks for their sins and their failures. Paul gives thanks to God for what he has done and for what he's ultimately going to do for his children. He doesn't commend these believers for their behaviors because, as I mentioned at the opening of the program, this is a church that's that's wrought with debauchery and sin and brokenness and division. They're suing each other. Some are, are entertaining prostitutes, Other another having an affair with his stepmother. I mean, th- this is a horrible set of circumstances that are going on, and yet he gives thanks because of the work that God is doing in their midst. He elaborates on their position and blessings in Christ and his faithfulness to confirm that each and every person in that church all the way to the end. It, it is the author and, our, and the perfecter of our faith who's at work here. So if Paul could be thankful for the church of Corinth, we can be thankful for our church. Instead of complaining about petty things, let's focus on all the blessings of our church. Now, verses 4 to 7, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which is which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you say this word? This word is logos, logos, or lagos. Some would argue there's, you know, we argue in the Greek uh, and how to say these particular words of the the long O's 
Uh, but, but no one knows for certain how the Koine Greek words were pronounced in the time of the New Testament. But, but this, this particular word, the word here, that's how we say word. And like grace, uh, is kedis or kadis or hadis. So you're going to hear a lot of folks say it a little differently. But it's like how we say hello in America, right? If you go to Texas, you're going to hear hello one way. If you hear hello in New York, it's going to sound completely different, right? That's how, that's how it is. But bottom line, if you, if you ever hear me say a word in particular a certain way and you hear somebody else say it differently, there, there's all kinds of de- debates in the translation of that. But, but nonetheless, you have this blessed speech, this knowledge. He gives logos, this word, word. The apostle is referring to the spoken word of truth, not just words. So logos appears 26 times in First and Second Corinthians compared to 58 times in the other Pauline epistles combined. And then we sort of see the word here, knowledge, which is gnosis in the modern translation, but in the koine, it was probably more like ginosis, and it refers to their spiritual insight. So gnosis appears 16 times in First and Second Corinthians, but only seven times in all the other writings of Paul. So we can sum up speech or utterance and knowledge as the telling forth or of truth and grasping of the truth. So they were speaking truth and they were grasping of the truth. But yet there seem to be struggle in application of this truth. So that's why Paul is giving thanks for their giftedness, not so much their use of the gift. And when we can learn a great deal about spiritual gifts from these four verses and our discussion that we're going to go into great detail when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through chapter 14. So we got a lot to cover there. But God gives us the necessary spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 26 on that, he knows exactly what each church needs. And here they had the knowledge, they had the understanding of the word and the ability to communicate. It wasn't that knowledge was absent from their midst. So the church at Corinth possessed every spiritual gift, and yet they weren't a very spiritual bunch. And that sounds sometimes like uh, you would talk about teenagers full of gifts and talents and wasting it on stupid stuff, right? So this should serve to remind us that every Christian, regardless of his or her spiritual maturity, they've been given spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, and Ephesians 1, 3. So that means that every Christian is immediately useful to Christ, to his church, And they have this unique opportunity that will be given to them for ministry. So whomever God calls, God equips, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. So God has given our body every spiritual gift necessary to accomplish all of his purposes. Don't have a doubt about that. Now, let me just use an illustration here. A few years ago, I got involved in this melee with my two boys. A good one. Alex and Aiden, there are my sons. And I made the awful mistake of getting involved in their pillow fighting match. Now, let me tell you, they beat me down with a holy vengeance. I've never seen two boys that so determined in my life. Honestly, they hurt me. <laughs> now, I'd never let them know that. But I, but I know it sounds funny, but bear with me. When I went into the pillow fight, I thought to myself, there's no way that these two boys are going to hurt me. I'm a bigger, stronger father. I, I can take them with one arm tied behind my back, is what I was thinking. And boy, was I wrong. They, they had the perfect 
game plan. Alex was fearless. He kept diving into me with these headbutts and body slams. And since I was on my knees for the fight, I couldn't shake him. He, he was all over me. And then Aiden just kept raining down pillow bombs and crashing against my head with this unusual authority. And, and whenever there was an opening, he had no mercy. And both of these boys behaved like trained assassins. It, it was brutal, downright sickening, honestly. Afterward, I told my wife that, that the, my back was bruised and scratched even. And I even strained my ribcage trying to protect myself. My boys were fine, mind you. And I'm reflecting on this incident. I realized that my boys were able to use the gifts they had to accomplish a great a great goal. Their goal was to beat dad, finally. And if either of them had tried to take me on alone, they wouldn't have been successful. They, they would have been crushed, right? I mean, I would have beat them down in the pillow fight. But because they came at it together using their skiffs, com communicating together, working together, they became a formidable foe. And God uses seemingly unimpressive gifts to accomplish his purposes. God wants us to be faithful to use our spiritual gifts. Our primary task is to act in faithful obedience to God in service to his people with what we've been given. Gifts are not necessarily mature at the time that we find out we have them, but they have to be developed. You see, there's maturation in the faith, according to 1 Corinthians 3.2 and Hebrews 5.12. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit's with you. The Holy Spirit's equipping you. And prayer, we're given this gift to come before the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. His blood is atonement and the Holy Spirit in us. And we're told to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5 to 16. And then we're told to read and apply his word in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Matthew 4, 4, 1 Timothy 4, Psalm 1, 2, the list goes on and on. And then we're told to have faithful service in James 2, 14 to 26. And then to especially share our testimony in Revelation 12, 11. So moving on, let's continue reading here in, for, in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. We read, Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in verse 8, Paul promises his readers that Jesus Christ is the one who will confirm you as the author and the finisher of your faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and the word confirm there is bibayo, and it's used eight times in Scripture. Mark 16, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 1, 6. A number of them here in 1 Corinthians, Colossians, Hebrews twice. So throughout, we see this word being used, and it means to make firm, to establish, to confirm, to make sure, like a solid foundation. And this suggests that Paul is using a legal metaphor, illustrating that God has completed a contract with the church at Corinth. So despite their behavior, God is faithful to do what he says he will do. Now, this indicates that the believers have God's guarantee that he will be purifying his people. He, he's not going to abandon them despite their faithlessness, despite their irreverent behavior. And we know this from Psalm 51, 7 to 17 and Hebrews 12, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns so that they will be blameless. Then that means chargeless or unimpeachable. So you can almost hear God saying to you, even right now, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. But here's the fact, purifying is rarely easy, and it's going to happen. Now, some of you, some of you are like titanium. It's like the, the melting point of titanium is at 3,020 degrees Fahrenheit. But once it's refined, 
It becomes more brilliant than a diamond. It's one of the most useful substances on the earth. From aircrafts to toothpaste, it can be used to filter out other substances, even through water or water itself. So God breaks down and purifies you, you titanium people out there, you stubborn, stiff-necked people. God is going to refine and purify you. So just remember that the refining process, the sanctification process, will make you powerfully useful to the greater kingdom work. I think of it like, you know, when you drive by and you see all those wild stallions running about, if you've ever driven through the countryside, and they're beautiful, but they can't be used yet. they got to be broken to be fully utilized. And some of you are like wild stallions that God has got to break so that you can be used by Him. And this word implies not merely acquittal, but the absence of even a charge or accusation against us. It means that every Christian will stand before the Lord guiltless because of His greater work through Jesus Christ, according to Romans 5.1 and 8.1. It's not an excuse for sin. Believe me, we're going to cover that to great extent. We're not to use our freedom in Christ as a license for sin. Even 1 John spends a great deal of time on that, of not giving us an excuse, that if we either walk in light or we walk in darkness, and, and our fruit will reveal that, our works will reveal that. Either, either we're truth followers, truth speakers, or we're not. So this is not an excuse for sin, but rather... It is the basis for a growing relationship of love, trust, and obedience. There's a, there's a big difference. I want to ask you this, this question here. That, are you a cat Christian or a monkey Christian? There's a big difference. If you notice how a mother cat carries her kittens, she grasps, grasps them by the neck with her teeth. So, so what does the, kiss, the kitten's security depend on? The mother. But by contrast, the baby monkey will grasp to its mother with its tiny paws and it hangs on for dear life. So on, on whom does the baby monkey's security depend? Itself. So does your security and salvation rest upon your ability to hang on to God? Or does it depend on God's ability to keep you? It, it isn't quite as simple as who is hanging on to whom, but the reality is is that we fail God every day, and our only hope is that Christ holds on to us despite ourselves. Now, in verse 9, we, we come to another great promise. Here it is. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How could Paul be so confident that the Christians would be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because his confidence was not in the Corinthians themselves, but in God. God is faithful. God is faithful to us, even though we are often unfaithful to him. You go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. So Paul's confidence is based upon God's certainty, God's calling who God is. God is the one that is acting upon the Christian. It is God who sanctifies, according to verse 2 here of 1 Corinthians. It is God who gives, God who enriches, God who confirms, and God who calls. So Paul shared to the Philippians in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that means our nature 
apart from the Holy Spirit, is not to do his good pleasure. So God is the one who works in us and sanctifies us. Now, furthermore, the last words of our passage here, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we must daily depend upon. And nine times in nine verses, Paul focuses in on Jesus Christ. So salvation and assurance is all about God's promise to keep us through the Lord Jesus Christ. A common hindrance, you see, to discipleship maturity is a lack of assurance. The the disciple that lacks assurance is going to lack confidence. They're, They're going to lack love, joy, peace, and comfort in the Lord. You go back to James 3, 13 to 17 on that. Let me let me just give you an illustration here as we come to the close of our, our program here today. But I was looking back at the history of the Golden Gate Bridge. In 1937, the great Golden Gate Bridge was completed. It cost $77 million. Now, by comparison, that would be $1.4 billion in today's currency. So the bridge was built in two stages. The first was slow, and the second part of it was rapid. The first stage, there was no safety devices used, none. And so as a result, 23 men fell to their deaths. However, for the final part, the second stage of the project, a large net was used as a safety precaution, and at least 10 men fell, and they were saved from death. Yet even the more interesting fact is is that 25% more work was accomplished after the net was installed. And you think, well, that, that makes common sense. But why? Well, it's because the men had the assurance of their safety and they were free to wholeheartedly serve the project. And likewise, those of us who have been saved by God's grace have been given a safety net. His name is Jesus Christ, and he has paid the ultimate price for our sins. He is the propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath. And on account of his person, his work, we have complete confidence in our relationship with God. So here's the challenge to us all. Are we still striving to be like Christ and laboring for his kingdom? Because God, God, God's not going to let us slide into, into eternity on this self-centered toboggan that we're riding right now. If you were in Christ, you were grafted into the tree of life, and he will prune you to produce fruit for his kingdom. It's not a matter of if, but when. He is going to make sure that you come into his presence having been fruitful for his kingdom, according to John 15, 1-11 and Romans chapter 11. So God is going to do a greater work through you, whether you like it or not. And you may end up like Job, losing your lot on this earth so that you can forever rejoice as an overcomer. So why should you give thanks to God for his church? Because God gives us every gracious gift and keeps us secure in his faithfulness. I hope you've been encouraged by this. We're just getting started. We've got 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to begin next week, and I want you to continue to go along this journey with me. If you were looking for a church in your area to go deeper in the Word of God, come and check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends.